Welcome everyone. This is the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. As always, I am your host, Gregory Akata, colorectal registrar, Southeast Scotland, and I have my friend with me, Ceci. Ceci, how are you doing? I'm fine, Greg. How are you? What's your week been like? Uh, it's been great. As said in the last episode, FRCS is out the way. Uh, success means celebratory uh, pint or two often take away these days thanks to uh, the lockdown but managed to celebrate with friends so that was good great how was yours yeah it's been okay well it's, it's only monday let's see what the week unfolds it's been nice and sunny here in west calder where i am and i've been for a walk today so i feel very refreshed and ready to dig in Today we've got a guest, a class as a dear friend of mine now. I started working within the Scottish Government around restart of sports and we've had a number of conversations in that time. I've got a chance to know him a bit better and learn a lot of the work that he's doing and I've got a lot of admiration for him. We've got Dr Jonathan Hansen on with us. I'll let him do his own introductions but a consultant in sports and exercise medicine but also the Glasgow Warriors team doctor. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for having me. Um, great to be here on a beautiful sunny day, uh, sunny winter's day in, in uh, central Scotland. Excellent. So Jonathan and I get to work. He's almost, he's probably sick of the sight of me now. When he does his Glasgow Warriors days and there's any interaction required with the Scottish Government, he gets to see me. And then he comes to work at the Victoria Hospital in Kirkcaldy and has a surgical referral. And then he has to see me. And then he comes on a podcast and he has to see me as well. <laughs> and what an impressive house you have. <laughs> Thankfully, the audience can't see my front room, but yes, it is relatively impressive. Thank you. <laughs> right, back to, back to you, Jonathan. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. People might wonder what the relationship is between sports exercise medicine and RCS Ed. And actually, the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine sits within the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, it's um, a faculty that's jointly hosted between RCS Ed and RCP London. Um, the, the great catalyst for the advancement of sport and exercise medicine as a specialty in the UK was the London Olympics bid. So we've been a specialty for 11 or 12 years now, um, which obviously has seen the rise of the faculty of sport and exercise medicine and, and uh, occupy a very welcome corner um, in both colleges, but particularly relevant to this one. RCS Ed. And actually it's an increasing specialty in itself. I was quite amazed as to how many sports and exercise medicine consultants there are, but also your training program is quite well established, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, there's, there's, big, um, there's a big geographical variation in that. Um, certainly as we're all speaking from Scotland, um, there isn't currently a training program in Scotland. Um, but across the UK in particular, there, there's a number of successful um, deaneries and programs that have been going now for a number of years since about 2010. Uh, indeed, my own training, I did a CESA CP combined program uh, between the Northern Deanery and over in Northern Ireland. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely um, quietly growing. Yeah. Well, I guess we can talk a lot more about you now. So you're a fairly unique individual in terms of both your journey and the broad range of sort of specialties that you have done and continue to do. So how about you talk us through your journey from where you started to where you are now? Sure. Um, so, so where I am now um, in the NHS, I'm, as, I, as you said, I'm a sport and exercise medicine consultant, but I'm based in an emergency department in Fife. Um, 
I'm not dual accredited, but I do have the FR Chem exit exam for emergency medicine. And I've done a lot of emergency medicine along the way. So um, I work, um, I'm comfortable in both environments. And if I flip that right back now that I'm 47, when I was 14, I was in a swimming club. I was sport billy at school, but I was in a swimming club and the pool life-saving club. So I've always combined sport and emergency medicine and resuscitation training since I was about 14 all the way through my career. Um, so I, I did my, um, as I say, I was in my uh, life-saving club. I played a lot of sport. I went to university and I always had this idea that it'd be really nice to try and carry on doing sport and medicine together. So much so that I did an intercalated BSc in orthopedics and radiology um, with Nicola Mafuli. Uh, and Frank Smith up in Aberdeen, um, Nicola Fooley's um, professor of orthopedic surgery. I think he's back over in Italy now, but at the time he was in Aberdeen and then went down to Kiel. Um, he was one of the people who changed the language around things like tendinitis becoming tendinopathy um, through studies showing there's not much in the way of inflammatory cells. And Frank Smith, Dr. Frank Smith, was a radiologist in Aberdeen who was one of the first uh, well, clinical pioneers of MRI scanning with the MRI being developed in part in Aberdeen. So I had some pretty senior people supervising my BSc where we looked at tibial plateau geometry um, using MR to try and see if we could predict who would do well conservatively with, um, with an ACL rupture and who wouldn't, um, who definitely did an operation, see if that could add anything. And I think that argument's probably been settled now. It depends on how active the individual wants to be more than shape of the bones are speaking generally um but i did that and while i was there frank smith the radiologist was also a team doctor at montrose football club so he took me along a couple of times to sort of shadow and back then you know mid 90s team doctoring definitely involved putting a suit on having a pie watching from the stand which is completely the different no, no completely not. different to what it's like now <laughs> um and so then I finished my undergraduate years and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I think in part that was because I still wanted to do this sport and emergency medicine, but there was no obvious way to do it in the late 90s. Um, and so I actually um, did a bit of A&E and I did a bit of medicine. And then through that, some strange idea, I thought I didn't think about sport anymore. And I thought cardiothoracics was the way I was going to go. So I did a, because of the, and you can see the theme here, you know, emergency medicine does, is a generalist specialty. Yep. Cardiothoracics, as a junior, you've got a bit of ITU, you've got a bit of theatre, you've got a bit of ward. Everybody goes into AF. Yep. So it's, it is, although it's a very highly specialised area, as a junior, it's pretty general. Um, so I did a surgical rotation and I, I did SHO3s in um, cardiothoracics. And then back then, um, there was a very, very tight bottleneck to get into formal registrar training. And I remember I had, had a bit of a day with one of my consultants there we were operating um, in thoracics and just having a conversation about the difficulties of getting through that bottleneck. He was talking to me about how it's important in life to look at the flowers, you know, enjoy the journey. It's not all about trying to jump through the hoops. And he's saying that some of his challenges he had was being in the same room every week and he wishes he could be outside more. That was kind of the conversation where I went, yeah, you know what? I really need to try and nail this sports thing that I've got and try and do my, my sports medicine that I've really wanted to do underneath. Um, and I'm very obviously a, a generalist at heart. So from that, that conversation there, I thought, right, well, what can I do? 
I came out of um, surgical training and I went into an informal emergency medicine job um, based in the Highlands, based on Sky, um, running a small rural hospital up there. And I was there for 10 years. I went for two, but ended up being there for 10. Um, that paid the bills and it gave me some great emergency medicine skills and let me get through all my emergency medicine exams. But around that, I needed to get some sports experience. So back in 2003, I actually contacted the, the previous Glasgow Warriors doctor, said, can I come and shadow? Absolutely, come along. He came along and he basically from that gave me Glasgow under-16s to look after, but mentored me, gave me Glasgow under-18s to mentor. And then one thing leads to another, introduced me to my boss, James Robson. He gave me Scotland under-21s. Uh, back in 2005 and then I've basically climbed through the tiers in in rugby uh, that way um, not just rugby at the same time there was a post advertised all part of the UK getting excited about a London Olympics bid there was a post for a junior sports physician to go to the world world university games in South Korea with team GB and I applied for that uh, competitive interview and managed to get it um, and then from that, that led on to doing that as a deputy CMO role and then um, managed to go onto the holding camp for the Beijing Olympics and then managed to go onto the Rio Olympics. And, you know, things just slowly climb as you do more exams and uh, membership of the um, Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, then there came the crunch point of suddenly it was a specialty and I'm sitting there with all these great plans and all ideas, but no actual finishing ticket. Um, you know, I, I, I was, um, I wasn't really uh, an SAS doctor in emergency medicine. I wasn't um, a sports physician. I, so I took a sabbatical from my sky job and trained in the Northeast and in Belfast in a formal training number in, in sport and exercise medicine. But I only really had to do um, two years of top up training for the specialties that I hadn't done along the way to then put a Caesar in to, uh, to get on the register, which is what most doctors of my age going through sports medicine had to do because the training program suddenly arrived and a lot of people had experience behind them but wouldn't didn't want to do the full training program again and once that happened then because I'd managed to get my emergency medicine exams and I finally had a finishing ticket sport and exercise medicine managed to we relocated back to the central belt and I took a half-time job at the Scottish Institute of Sport we're the government organisation that looks after the performance needs of the Olympic and Commonwealth athletes based in Scotland. I took um, a locum consultant job with NHS Fife in the emergency department. And then from that, this role was created where I got a substantive post in SEM with a special interest in emergency medicine. Um, and then the final bit to that, again, my having climbed the ranks through the Scottish age groups, um, and done the Scottish national team while James Robson was away um, with the Lions, so his various Lions tours, I managed to get uh, Glasgow Warriors as their team doctor for the past four seasons. Phew. <laughs> so, I think lis <laughs> listening to that story, I think the biggest thing that stands out is flexibility, determination, perseverance, and time. I think it's amazing that journey, how long that's taken you, but, you, you know, you've finally got to where you wanted to be clearly enjoyed what you're doing and it's just a remarkable tale of just press on and keep going on eventually you'll get there so uh, hats off to you 
also a great message for um, our younger members just about following your passion and following your dreams and also how beautifully flexible medicine can be if you just seek the right opportunity for you. I've certainly um, achieved the outcome of that conversation with the thoracic surgeons in Glasgow <laughs> of make sure you look at the flowers along the way, get a job that lets you be outside and, and do what you want to do. I wasn't quite sure what it meant by look at the flowers. Uh, I presume you took that literally and just went outdoors and kept looking at the flowers. <laughs> um, right, moving on. I knew I'd said at the pre-meet that I wasn't going to ask you any quick fire questions, but I've just got one. You talked there about some of the people that have helped you along the way, and James Robson clearly is one of them. But on this program, we tend to have a scenario around Noah's Ark. Okay, so take your mind back to Noah's Ark is back. There is a flood, as often as the case in West of Scotland, where your uh, part of your work is based. And on the Ark, there's just one spot left. Okay, your option is James Robson or Niall <laughs> Elliott, who is the CMO for the institute that you also work in. Which one of them would you let on? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, well, James is a fellow of the college, so... I'll defer to James. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's actually a really nice point and something that we're trying to give back because we, we do have a very informal training path. And I'm very lucky in that I've basically had a, it's not a formal training program, but I've had an informal mentor training program by, amongst others, James Robson for the past 15 years. And certainly now I work very closely with Niall Elliott. Um, but... Um, you know, Niall and I have these conversations about making sure we do the same for the next generation, especially in Scotland where there isn't a training programme. Um, and we've got two or three 30-something you know, doctors who are showing an interest and we're trying to mentor them to provide opportunities. So I'd let James on because he's definitely encouraging, shown us a way to work that makes us pass the baton on. Touché. And actually, to, to that point, some of those interactions I've had through the other sports teams, so the women's, etc., just highlights that mentorship that you've got going on, because a lot of them come on to the calls and reflect on the mentorship they've had from yourself and James, so hats off to you guys as well. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, and it's a very unusual one. Were there any points in time that you thought, my goodness, where am I going? And I don't know if I can ever achieve my dreams. Were there ever any low points in this journey? And how did you get over them? Um, you know, I think, I think as soon as you leave medical school, if you don't know exactly what you want to do and you can't see your clear path, which a lot of young doctors probably find themselves in, there are some who know exactly what they want to do. But there's a lot that don't. There's always a little bit of edginess or uncertainty, uncertainty when you're discussing with colleagues and peers around what jobs and applications. And, and when I sort of talk to people about this strange idea of wanting to do sport and emergency medicine together, you know, when there's no training path back in the late 90s, um, I had some unusual um, looks and some um, cheeky comments from, from good friends, you know, who felt they could get away with it. Um, so I've definitely had to ride the speed bumps a bit. Um, and every job I've really taken, once I left cardiothoracics, every job I've taken has been a bit like that. Um, you know, when, when I went to Sky to work in a small rural hospital there, you know, it's very, it's non-mainstream. It's actually a brilliant job. You know, you're on your own 300 miles from the city or 200, 200 miles from the central belt. 
Um, you've got a small rural hospital, anything can happen. 250,000 people coming through a year, car crashes, premature babies, everything. It gives you great coping skills, which is great for traveling with teams with sport because it gives you that real sense of judgment of this is not safe. We need to do something differently. How can we problem solve? So I've always kind of found the positives in the unusual circumstances in what I'm doing. Even now, um, working at the Institute of Sport, that's very non-mainstream. Um, and some people think that's a bit unusual. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always been having to ride the bumps since I graduated from medical school with what I wanted to do and some of the job choices that I've had. But I've, I've just kind of got comfortable that that is the way my life is going to be. Having said that, I've set some, I've set some barriers. It's, it's easy to make big decisions and risks when you're young, free and single. But when I've got two children and family to support, et cetera, you know, having some stability and not taking big career risks is, is more attractive. Now, that brings me very nicely on to my next point. It seems that through your journey, you've seen an evolution of sports medicine, and in particular, the human factors that are involved in both delivery of care and delivery of training. As a fellow human factors proponent myself, having finished reading everything Matthew Said has ever published, I'd be interested to know what you think about that, just the human factors in sports medicine and in the training program. Yeah, I mean, within the training program, um, the training program is very, it's a generalist training program. So you do six months of this, six months of that, a bit, a bit like you do in general practice, except it's longer with more focus on um, musculoskeletal medicine. In fact, I never actually said the, um, the, uh, the mantra of the Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine is excellence in team care, um, excellence in musculoskeletal medicine and physical activity for health in those three domains. So the, the, the training program tries to cover those, those three areas. So the only sort of areas where people would get exposed to human factor situations formally would be if they work in a critical care situation, um, anesthetics, which um, ITU, emergency medicine type um, pictures, or when they're doing teamwork. My particular, and, and I appreciate you know, every, every specialty has now got human factors in it, but particularly the areas who've historically been very focused on this from the airline industry. My particular angle came from the teamwork. So in a sport, and, and I pick rugby, but you know, I'm, I'm a, although we talk a lot about rugby, I'm, I'm a general sports physician across all sports. But because of the trauma aspect of rugby and the potential for seriously injured players and the performance end, you're asking people who work in sport who are predominantly primary care or physiotherapists to suddenly cope with dealing with a potentially severely injured person, player, patient. Yeah. So for me, that's an easy target for human factors training, human factors awareness, so that when that happens, um, you've got a system in place and a structure in place that you're more likely to, to do well and get a better patient outcome. It's not like a team of emergency physicians or anesthetists or surgeons looking after a critically unwell people where you're seeing it reasonably frequently. It's only an occasional event um, for, these, for these people. Um, about 10 years ago, because of my sports and emergency medicine angle, I wrote a course called Scrum Caps for Scottish Rugby 
which is the Scottish Rugby Union Medical Cardiac and Pitchside Skills Course. And it was basically trying to give people the the practical skills and the team working to manage an airway, do CPR, manage a limb fracture, spinally immobilize somebody and extricate. Um, we've now moved on from those, or I've moved on from those sort of courses now because so many people have done them. They're all over the place. Uh, Scottish football, English football, English rugby, Welsh rugby, everybody's got them. But it's the next level up of how then do you improve the team working and reduce error in those immediate care situations. And it's even gone one step further now um, in that from a performance side of the sport, you know, it's, it's all very well having the familiarity and judgment when you're in a nice calm emergency room to manage somebody with abdominal pain or chest pain or, or obviously fractured leg, but doing that in the snow on a pitch under floodlights where potentially 80,000 people in the stadium, 5 million or more people watching on TV, human factors there so that if if you've got robust situational awareness, communication, radio skills, that you can minimise the chance that you're going to make an error in that environment. It has a positive outcome for the player in terms of health-wise, but also, which is only a small part of it, the sports like this, um, from a performance perspective, if you're going to make a more accurate decision about somebody's fitness to continue, then that's probably going to have a benefit for the team as well in terms of sport and outcome. We always try and distance ourselves a bit from that because we're about healthcare, not performance. But there's definitely some crossover of the human factors stuff um, to try and improve outcome from a performance aspect. Absolutely fantastic. I think my favourite phrase from this entire podcast so far is nice, calm emergency room, because a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, (laughs) (laughs) when they think of the emergency room, especially in a busy hospital, because I'm being a paediatric surgery trainee, I always... I only work in tertiary centers and usually the emergency rooms there are absolute chaos. So it really is a real testament to your skill as a clinician that you can think of the emergency room as the calm side of your work. So real credit to you. Uh, And just one last question for me before I hand over to Greg for some of the meat. Um, What has been the most challenging scenario you've had to deal with on the pitch? Yeah. So um, I was talking about this relatively recently, actually, because, um, um, one of the teams I did along the way was Great Britain mountain running for British athletics. And I was the team doctor for that squad for about five years. And, um, you know, these, these are amateur athletes, but they're still all, you know, two hour 15 marathon runners uh, for the men, two hours 40 for the women. Um, and yes, they're all talented athletes, but not quite the track headline athletes. So you would hear, you would know, um, and there's a big gulf there. They're, they're definitely amateur, but seriously talented. And about 10 years ago, the, um, the, the world mountain running champions were held in, were held in Albania, uh, which was a country I'd not been before, but it was in the mountains in, in Albania. And the way the, the schedule for this always works is um, the junior women go first, then the junior boys, then the senior women, then the senior men. So normally they would start really early if it's going to be a hot climate. But the way they had it, the timings this way, the, the senior men's race, the, the elitist of the elite, they're expecting the fastest time that attracts the, um, you know, all sorts of talented athletes come out of the woodwork for that one, was at midday. 
in the mountains at altitude in over 30 degrees of heat. Um, and as often happens sometimes with these events, the quality of the medical care, you can't figure it out until you actually arrive. Um, and the medical care that they provided was a large marquee, an orthopedic surgeon and an ambulance for a race that had over, um, over 150 runners. And the race um, went like this. So it's the World Mountain Ring Championships and the Africans are always the people who turn up and destroy the field, <laughs> destroy the field. So they do three laps. The first lap, four Ugandans out front. The second lap, three Ugandans out front, one about 100 metres further back. The third lap, three Ugandans finish. The fourth one is being carried down above head height by everybody else, members of the crowd who were watching to the finish line. They arrived at the finish line, took him to the ambulance, which had no air conditioning, him straight in the back of the uh, the ambulance. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, it wasn't my athlete, but again, you feel you have a duty of care to try and figure out what's happening there. And I went across, had a look, confirmed he had a pulse, confirmed they were doing cooling measures, and then went back to think about my athlete. Um, so, the potential there for being stuck with a seriously injured potential cardiac arrest type athlete or heat exhausted athlete up a mountain who wasn't one of my team when I'd got four coming on with limited medical backup. That is the apex medical situation that I've had in sports medicine that's really challenged me. And I was thinking, we, you know, we got away with that there. Um, it's not actually the um, bad injuries that you might see at Murrayfield or Wembley or somewhere like that, where you've got a team of really good support. Um, it tends to be that mid-level event where a lot of perhaps um people listening might get so oh, do you want to come along to um and you want to come with this team we can't get a doctor and before you know it, you're roped in and what sort of equipment have you got how much um support have you got so that's the most challenging i've had thank you so much for sharing that that's absolutely mad and it puts things in perspective i don't think i will ever complain about a single registrar shift i have ever again from now henceforth because that <laughs> is hard just going back to your comments around the, what was it you said? The quiet, calm emergency department. I remind you the next time I come down to your ER, <laughs> how calm and quiet that is. But actually on, on the subject of uh, some of the difficult moments that sports medics or sports doctors have to endure, I wonder if you did watch the recent Formula One race where Romain Grosjean goes through a barrier and the car's on fire. If you did see, what were your reflections on what Ian Roberts had to deal with arriving at that scene? Yeah, I mean, just amazing. You know, we're talking about human factors and, and, and safety generally, how a sport has embraced um, safety on every single level um, from technology. I, I was reading somewhere about um, that, that he, that he, the force that he hit the, the wall with was 53G. Correct. And yet he, he walked away with burnt hands. Um, despite f 15 seconds of being a fireball. 28 um, seconds. Or 20, 28 seconds. seconds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's just unbelievable. Um, I read about the halo afterwards, and, and I think we yep. see this actually in a few other sports. You know, when when nobody likes change, and when change happens, especially if it's safety-orientated, not performance-orientated, um, it can take a while for things to bed in, and people grumble, and people find the, can find the negatives. Um, but now I think if you ask the driver now, given that 
the halo, this metal frame that sits in front of the driver, um, is the strongest part of the car, um, deflects any flying objects, um, and provides some structure to the, the capsule that they sit in. Um, now he was saying afterwards, thank goodness for the halo. Yeah. So it's a great example of change management and um, a great example of a sport embracing safety and getting a, getting a good outcome. Um, and also great bravery from uh, the, the, the people involved who got involved with the rescue as well. Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, there is some link to, to head injury with that because the halo was initially put in to protect the driver's uh, heads from, from previous head injuries. And as you alluded to, if you look at the images post-crash, you could see that the halo was fully intact. And you can imagine if it wasn't there, likely would have been fatal if, yeah. if his helmet, you know, 53G through a barrier, I don't, I'm not sure how he'd survive that. Yeah. But such as change, as you say. Well, bringing that back to, to the work that you've done around concussions and head injuries, both in Scotland and, and the rest of the UK. I know there's different levels to this, and I know you've been an avid enthusiast around raising the awareness of head injuries and concussions, both in the sporting aspect, but also in emergency departments across the country. If you just talk us through some of the work that you've done, uh, both with the Scottish Government, Sports Scotland, uh, from grassroots to elite level, and then we can later talk about the work you've done around emergency departments. Sure. So um, the Scottish Government has got a medical advisory group um, around um, sports concussion, which involves the chief medical officers of the major sports in Scotland, rugby, football, um, the universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, the uh, now chief medical officer, um, he was deputy chief medical officer when we started it, uh, and, and Sports Scotland staff. Um, that actually started before I joined the Institute, so I came on to that group. Um, and initially, when, when that was happening, all the grassroots sports had different guidance, so it was really difficult. For, for, it was really confusing for, for the general public to understand what should I do with little Johnny or whoever when they get a concussion. So that group was set up to look at the global guidance, which exists and gets updated every four years, and try and tartanify it to apply it to Scotland so that we had a single policy for all sports. Again, a bit like human factors, let's make it easier for people to get this right. Um, so that first happened in 2015. Um, and then when the, the uh, global guidance was updated, um, in 2018, we published our revised guidance. Sorry, 2017, we published our revised guidance um, that, of how to manage, how to recognise and manage concussion across all sport in Scotland. The first wave when we did it, it was about just creating the group and getting the message. The second wave and second group, it was about let's make the athletes more prominent and get the medics and the staff to the back. If you, if you see any of the paperwork or, or media around the launch of the second one, we tried to put athletes from all the major sports to increase the chance that when somebody's looking at that, they go, oh, I know that person. That's a famous hockey player or a famous rugby player, depending on whatever your sport was. You know, I, I might not be able to recognise a famous hockey player, but somebody else may well. Um, the third wave is about to start um, revising this guidance because the next global concussion meeting should have been Paris 2020 uh, happening this autumn, but for obvious reasons, it's now Paris 2021. Um, so we're trying to get ourselves into a position so that once we come out of Paris 2021 and we've updated our guidance, we really can drill down through all the educational tools that 
um, online tools that children use, like the Glow website, to get down so that we're working at the the athlete interface with kids and, and adults. Um, hands up, who's ever had any undergraduate or postgraduate teaching in how to manage a concussion? Won't be seeing many people because it doesn't exist. Um, so equally, we've had to think about what can we do for the medics and who commonly sees head injuries, both the, the, at first glance and if they come back with difficulties. Emergency medicine is an easy target for me. General practice through the Scottish Government Advisory Group. And we've got, we got to the situation where GPs have this um, practice-based small group learning once every six weeks or so. It's that Wednesday afternoon, sometimes you might notice when you, your GP practice is closed for CPD. That's typically what they're doing. And there's something like 50 of these modules that they can do as you know, self-directed learning. So we, we put a concussion module in there. We um, formulated some standardized concussion advice for emergency departments. So about how to rehabilitate somebody in the first couple of weeks um, from a head injury. It's not just a case anymore of rest, 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 on you go. Not surprisingly, you pull your hamstring. You're not going to run a marathon the next day, but you're usually not going to rest two weeks and then run a marathon. You're going to do a stage return. It's exactly the same with a, the brain injury, with a concussion injury. That's all the guidance does. And we managed to get a bit of traction from that from um, Arkham Scotland. It's not quite made it universally across all Scotland, but it's out there uh, and we are working with them all the time to try and push, um, you know, a bit like the halo. We are trying to push it in a little bit more and get people to take it. Uh, and we, equally, we got some positive messages from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health about wanting to, and they did, they promoted the topic and the, the, the discharge advice on, um, on their website. Of course, the next thing we need to think about is what do we do with the difficult cases? Because even with these difficult cases, and bearing in mind that most cases of concussion should be treatable and rehabable, um, even the really difficult ones, most of them need an MDT approach um, with um, secondary care involvement across neurology or even sports medicine. Um, but currently that doesn't exist. Those models don't exist. So that's kind of the, the long-term goal that we do get a better support for those hopefully few at the end of the end of the tunnel who don't get anywhere and need extra help. Great. And, you know, it's clearly a lot of work that you, know, you and the group have put into this. It's, as we said, at the start, fairly topical. We've seen on a number of high profile cases where, you know, clash of heads uh, and how is that managed from an elite sports point of view? What's been the challenges that you've encountered or uh, what are some of the me mechanisms that you've put in place, both, I guess, in rugby, football and across uh, grass, well, maybe not grassroots sports, but you know what I mean, through, through yeah. the different sports. What are the mechanisms you put in place to deal with that? Yeah, so in, in rugby, um, there are two notable things that happened about 10 years ago. The first one was a great piece of work from um, the R RFU and, and um, Dr. Simon Kemp, um, who was the team doctor for England when they won the World Cup. He produced a study or he made an observation um, of his own, of their league, basically, of if you do an on-the-run, on-field assessment of concussion, bearing in mind that concussion can present 24, 36 hours after the impact, uh, only 10% of people are knocked out, doesn't necessarily need a blow to the head, just needs energy through the body. He reckoned that on-the-run assessments were only picking up perhaps 30 or 40% um, of these um, 
cases, uh, sorry, slightly more than that actually, but about 50% of these cases were missing a significant amount. But he put to World Rugby that taking that off-field and doing an off-field assessment with a more structured approach away from the 80,000 people or away from the snow, um, getting the player out of that warrior mentality might increase um, the pickup rate that we have, basically. And from from that journey became the, the HIA process that everybody talks about. Um, the great thing there was that went to World Rugby and there were lots of points and points of view put you know, some strong discussion as well. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't just all accepted. There was lots of points debated and still is. It's still being changed and revised now. But that figure went up into the 90% of how many that we pick up through the HIA process. The other thing that happened 10 years happened to, to me in Scotland, um, but it happened to others as well. Um, I was working um, as an immediate care doctor at one of the, the Six Nations games and we all of our medical team missed a very obvious loss of consciousness, which everybody on the TV saw that we didn't see at all. Uh, and that comes back to anybody who's worked pitch side. You have the best seat in the house, but you have the worst seat in the house. because You see things once at 50 metres away through a crowd of people. And if you've looked at your feet, spoke to somebody, scratch your nose, you've missed it. Whereas, of course, TV are getting 50 replays from Sky and this, that, other. So after we missed this, and we got, we got slaughtered a bit um, by quite a few people for missing this loss of consciousness, but then we started using television feed replay to try and review incidents if there was a collision that we thought was suspicious. Um, and again, we, we threw that into the mix. Not alone, Wales were doing it as well. Um, we threw that into the mix, um, and that was debated in World Rugby, and now that is an integral part of the head injury assessment system. So to pass... To, to be to be given to be told you don't have concussion in rugby, you have to not have a suspicious mechanism on video. You have to pass the HAA one tool, which is a bit like um, a memory and numbers and balance test that you have to do immediately. You have to pass another one after the match, and then pass another one after two sleeps. It's actually a forty-eight hour process comprising at least four components before we'll say you do not have a concussion. The challenge that football has, it still has exactly the same problem of the medics have the best seat in the house, but the worst seat in the house. They might not have seen what we've seen on television. I've no doubt that the people involved are highly trained and very experienced, good medics. They don't want to uh, make any mistakes on this, but it is difficult sometimes to see it. Um, and the challenge that football has is currently they have an on-field three-minute assessment bearing in mind what I said about what English rugby showed, already that would seem to be struggling. It's only two or three years ago that um, football allowed video replay on the bench. Um, and I, I was very lucky in that I went with England to the World Cup in Russia. Um, England football, where specifically one, apart from the human factor stuff around immediate care, my, my brief was, try and support growth of a video-based review system um, so that we were more proficient at spotting any potential head injuries and we didn't leave anybody on the field who was potentially concussed. Um, so I know from first hand that that three-minute on-field experience is tricky because it's on-field, 80,000 people, 8, 8 million billion people at a World Cup and everybody's under the pressure. That, you know, does the referee know how long three minutes is? 
in my experience, he doesn't. Um, and, you know, so, so it's a culture change. So, you know, there, there are these models, there are different ways of doing it. The rugby one is still changing and evolving. Football's talking about changing and evolving, but they're at different stages. And you've got to remember as well that concussion is the number one sport, uh, number one injury, the most common injury in professional rugby year on year now. Whereas in football, and I don't have a reference for this, but it's been quoted to me that it's 70 times less common in football than it is in rugby. So not surprisingly, if you're working in rugby like me, you're seeing this most weeks. If you're working in football, you might only see it once or twice a year. I think that's interesting. And some of the comments you make is also a reflection of quality improvement and how you can actually take a problem, assess the scale of the problem, make a specific change that leads to improved outcomes and i think it's a testament to the hard work that you're all doing with regards to football i take your point three minutes on the pitch especially in the eight to ninth minute where the home team is you know one goal down you've got a referee and another 22 players staring at you to make a decision fairly quickly you look at what american football has done actually is to take the player away completely put them in a tent make your assessment there but i recognize that would be difficult for for some of the other sports but as you say the work goes on to continue to try to make some progress not just with rugby and football but i guess other sports one question for me before ceci comes in that comment around 70 times less common in football is part of that to do with recognition or is it truly solely mechanism of injury yeah i think it's um it's probably a bit of everything isn't it you know but the, the biggest factor there is just the nature of the sport Rugby is a collision sport. It's not even a contact sport. You know, the, the point is to, to smash into each other, to drive each other back, to win ground, a bit like American football. Whereas, you know, football is a, football is a contact sport um, where you're not looking to physically dominate as much as, as you are in the others. So there are fewer um, risky situations occur in football. Um, equally, the, the nature of the beast... Um, Concussion is very, can be very difficult to spot in real time. Um, that's why rugby's got this 48-hour process. So there possibly is some recognition issue. Um, but ultimately, I think it's just the difference in the nature of the two sports. Um, quick question. Since we've been discussing American football and its similarities to rugby, I remember <laughs> in terms of being a collision sport, um, in it brings to mind a book I read, I want to say about a year ago, written by an American physician called Bennett Omalu, called Truth Doesn't Have a Side. And he's done a lot of work on American football and concussions and the impact of it. I was wondering if there's any similar sort of research going on in sports medicine surrounding concussion injuries and if there have been any um, molecular or um, post-mortem studies conducted to try and understand this a bit better. Um, so there's, there's certainly um, embryonic research, you know, sport and exercise medicine is still a relatively new specialty. And some of the things we've talked about, you know, how long it takes to to drive change. Um, and sometimes it does take a reaction to, to problems to, to drive interest. Um, there's obviously a lot of non-medical people interested in, in these things, which have, have a loud voice. Um, we're very lucky with our Sports Scotland or our Scottish Government Sports Scotland Advisory Group that one of the members of that group is, is Dr. Willie Stewart, who's a neuropathologist um, based over in Glasgow, 
who is one of the authors of the, the field study, which is the one that's quite prominent at the moment, showing that historical retrospective data from death records and health records, footballers get more dementia than um, non-footballers uh, historically. But the problem is we've got with, this is going forward, how do we get the case numbers to actually prove where we are with sport? And that example that you've just talked about there with Banatamalu's work, you know, how do we get um, modern rugby doesn't look like anything like rugby 20 years ago. How do we get a batch of brains from modern rugby players or from modern athletes in any sport to um, to try and provide good enough science to, to look at that? And of course, we're not going to get them for 20 or 30 years. So one of the things, or hopefully 40 or 50 years, but one of the great things that has happened is, you know, there are... Willie Stewart has got a project looking for people who've played a lot of collision sport, contact sport, not just elite, but grassroots as well, looking to see if they will donate their brains for examination when, um, when they die to try and generate that level of, um, your level of um, science that we need to, so, so we know more about it. So at the moment, it's the great unknown. I mean, one, one of the things that's definitely has changed, and I couldn't quote you the evidence, because again, it's more under my teaching when I've been taught than... Um, than any active research I have, but you know, we used to talk about concussion as a functional injury. CT is normal, MRI is normal. It's a functional injury, but it's not. What it actually is, it just means our scanning can't pick it up. If you use um, functional MRI, you can see changes. What it actually is is a, is a metabolic and circulatory problem. So you do the, the contact cause, causes problems with permeability in membranes, which neurotransmitters, vasoconstriction, altered blood flow, um, that's the nature of the pathology. So we already know more about that than we did 10 or 15 years ago. So although there are lots of high-profile cases around the world, and the NFL in particular um, has generated a lot of interest, it can be difficult sometimes between trying to remember that what we need is high-quality medical evidence. Um, not, that, not that I'm saying that stuff's been done isn't, but you know, there's always a lot of media interest and noise around evidence, and it gets um, perhaps spun in a different way than it actually is. Thanks, Jonathan. I think one of the greatest things at the moment is the heightened awareness. You can see rugby continues to do what it does in terms of leading the way around head injury and concussion in the United Kingdom. But also football has started that conversation around the number of times you had the ball and any contributions of that to head injuries, but also discussions now around uh, concussion or head injury substitutions so that you actually have that time to do a formal assessment, a proper assessment, without some of the pressures that you talked about earlier, and we hope that leads to some change. One question for me is around the scale of the problem in terms of the short, medium, and potential long-term impacts of concussions, not just in sports, but also from your emergency medicine perspective. What are some of those uh, effects that you see short, medium, long-term? Yeah, so um, this is very relevant for the for the grassroots population, really. Um, the, you know, the the short term issue with concussion, um, how do you have that conversation with athletes, players who just want to play? Oh yeah, I've got they, they may lack capacity because they've had a concussion. They're in warrior mentality because they're in the middle of a sport that they love. They want to stay on. How do you have that discussion with them? And so the way I engage with players and athletes about the short term problems of concussion, if it is a problem that's slowing your thinking, um, not affecting your decision-making ability, then you're of no value to the team. 
So you might as well come off. Your team is more likely to win if you come off than if you don't. And there's a great example of that, um, which is in the media, um, which was Carius, the Liverpool goalkeeper. Don't know if you remember that. From he was he was in yeah. the uh, in goals in the European Cup that Liverpool lost about three or four years ago. He made a couple of high-profile errors. Uh, he subsequently went to America and in the media came out saying that he's been to a hospital and been told he was concussed and that's why he made those errors. So trying to get it, the, the short-term concern is really a concern about um, performance on a minor level for players. That's how you can get them off. There is this condition called second impact syndrome, um, which I don't know if you've heard of, um, but it's very popular in North America. It's been you know, put on a lot of death certificates and, and the idea with second impact syndrome is that if you have two consecutive concussions quite close to each other, it doesn't have to be minutes or hours, it can be days. Um, because it is a functional metabolic circulatory issue, you disrupt your ability to do autoregulation within your brain with the first knock. And the second knock, that system collapses, you get massive perfusion problems uh, behind the blood-brain barrier, cerebral edema, and, and die. Um, now, it's a controversial topic, um, but in the UK, medical legally, we now have at least one, possibly two cases on a death certificate via a coroner's court. So it does exist in the UK, medical legally. Um, it is a controversial topic, and the highest profile case that we have is, funnily enough, another member of our Scottish Government Advisory Group, uh, Peter Robinson, who's the lay member on our group. It happened to his son, Ben, who... Had, was playing schoolboy rugby age 14 and he had two or three um, um, collisions where each time it was, are you okay? Pound the back, stands up. You're right, yeah, fine. Wave a finger in front of his eyes. Do you know where you are? On you go. Uh, unfortunately, he, the third, the third or fourth instant, he collapsed, stayed down, needed to be ventilated and, and got massive cerebral edema and died. So it does exist. So that's the kind of short-term... The common one is you're no use to your team. The, um, the medium term, sorry, the other short term one there would be second impact syndrome. There is a third one actually for short term, um, which is if, if your brain's not working properly and you can't think straight and you can't, you're not quite sure where you are, how are you effectively controlling your limbs? How are you controlling what your leg does as you go into that tackle? How are you controlling the position your shoulder's in? And, you know, for Joe Public, if... Um, if one of my professional players ruptures his ACL or dislocates his shoulder, that's going to be, what, six, nine months out. But for Joe Public, if he, that happens to him and he ruptures his ACL and he's a plumber, that's a year's lost earnings. So there is a considerable morbidity for grassroots people of not taking, um, you know, not, um, not taking concussions seriously at the time. And that's why we've all got a responsibility pitch side, you know, to highlight if we see something concerning and if in doubt, sit them out because it's not worth it. Um, on a medium-term level, I suppose I've covered that a bit with second impact syndrome because it does brush into. But equally, you can get these people who have post-concussion syndrome, which has got has got timeline definitions of 14 days in adults, 28 days in kids. But it's basically persistent concussion symptoms. And we know that if you have a subsequent function, a subsequent injury on top of a previous one, your uh, brain function abnormalities can persist for longer, and your symptoms can persist for longer. So these are the group who end up with the problem of they're always a bit dizzy if they move suddenly or they, they wake up with an early morning headache and then become unable to continue with sport and life. Um, 
the long-term stuff we've kind of covered really it's that chronic traumatic encephalopathy um findings of the field study around dementia motor neurone disease you know although the field studies are a uk-based study with, with heavy scottish influence done the scottish population you know, it is a retrospective study so we can't for definite say there is a link between this and that however that's the best evidence we've got at the moment so you know we're concerned and we should respect it for the short medium and long-term consequences but um the long-term stuff is a bit more difficult to see until we get that 30 years further on another look it's it's always exciting to, to talk about it's been fascinating insights lots learned one final thing for me though we as general surgeons often have to cover uh, patients that have had head injuries so moving away from the elite sports and putting your em hat on with all the experience and knowledge that you have what one message would you have to those of us who have to cover uh, some of these patients either overnight or for days ahead in terms of there's one key advice on recognition management in a hospital setting for these patients what would it be yeah so again because there is very little undergraduate and postgraduate training if you when we're undergraduates if you're doing an obstetric block you take an obstetric history if you're doing a psychiatric block you take a psychiatric history bearing in mind i've just said that concussions one on top of each other somebody's had four in a year uh, a bad news and probably should get more conservative advice learn to take a concussion history how long have you had how many have you had in the past how long out have you had did you have to have and when was your last one um if you look on if you can google the the um scottish government sports scotland advice just google sports scotland concussion advice and that will give you some information that you can give to players or to patients um about focusing on how to have a stage return to normal life so you can get back to earning or learning. And then once you've achieved that, get back to your sport through a graduated return to sport. It's all there on the Sports Scotland concussion advice. Wow, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk to you all day. There's so many layers to you and as a professional and as a sportsman, it's just so fascinating. And I think our listeners are very lucky to have had the pleasure of getting to know you a bit better that brings us quite nicely to the end of this podcast and the only thing left to say is thank you so much Jonathan for joining us today and for your words of wisdom for those of you guys listening if you have any questions or any comments the email address as always is comms at rcsed.ac.uk that is c-o-m-m-s at rcsed.ac.uk and we'll be Absolutely delighted to hear from you, won't we, Greg? Absolutely, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. Great conversation. Lots of good advice. Thanks for coming on. And go Warriors. Is that what I'm supposed to say now? (laughs) We need it this year. You do. Thank you very much. Thank you very Uh, much. Thanks, everyone. It was a pleasure. We'll see you next week.